0: Hi! I'm I'm Randy
1: And I'm Claire. And you're listening to Killer Vibes, a true crime podcast. Okay, so when we last spoke with each other, (laughs) we were talking about the unsolved murder of Suzanne Joven, which took place on December 4th, 1998. So, when we left off, we had just finished our timeline of Suzanne's day, the day she was murdered. And, um... We have that weird 35-minute period that is unaccounted for. So we know that she was possibly driven from Yale campus to the place she was killed, which is in East Rock, Connecticut. So police sort of corroborate this story. They think that she was probably driven as well. It only takes about seven minutes by car to get to where she was killed, which is plenty of time for the murderer to have an argument with her and then kill her by stabbing her 17 times, which is a lot of times. (laughs) Um, So just so that you get an idea for the neighborhood, it's really close-knit. It's sort of like Stepford in its own way. (laughs) Very large houses, as we described before. And it's basically rich suburbia. So There are a couple people who lived in the neighborhood who claim they saw a brown van that night in the neighborhood, something that they hadn't seen before. Now, for someone like me who has come from a suburban neighborhood, my parents were on, like, high alert. If something (laughs) weird showed up on our cul-de-sac, they knew about it. And they were messaging, like, the other neighbors, like, across the street and stuff. So it kind of makes sense that something like a huge brown van that nobody had ever seen before stuck out like a sore thumb. And there were multiple people who came forward and said that this is what happened and that they saw this the night of. So that possibly could have been the vehicle that transported Suzanne from um, campus to um, Edge Rock. I noticed a van... Anywhere. I know, vans right? are creepy. Vans are creepy. And if you've listened to our previous episode about Kenya Monhe, we know that vans are creepy. Creepy white vans. <laughs> creepy brown vans. <laughs> creepy brown It doesn't, doesn't matter. matter. <laughs> the color is creepy. It's still creepy. Um, So a van would definitely yeah. stick out. Now that we're getting further into the case, we're going to dig into the evidence that was found on the scene, which there's not a whole lot of and you're gonna see why the evidence makes me angry. I'll tell you in a minute. So, just a reminder this case took place in 1998. Um, so, it was kind of when DNA testing was in its baby stages. It did exist, and they did scrape underneath Suzanne's fingernails for DNA, which is smart. And if you ever are under attack, which could happen and is a very real thing, scratch your attacker scratch your attacker because you'll have your DNA
0: underneath your fingernails. This showed up in the Kenya Monhe, Lydia Tillman case as well. When the attacker doused the whole scene with bleach, they were able to find uh,
1: DNA under her fingernails. Absolutely. So just a candid for the future. (laughs) Just remember (laughs) that. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So the first piece of evidence that's kind of interesting about this case is how many eyewitnesses there were. Not to the actual murder, because remember, we have those weird 35 minutes, but there are a whole bunch of people who came forward, and there's actually still an active call line for this case for the New Haven, Connecticut Police Department. And because it's the 20th anniversary, there's a lot of pressure for this case. Um, We'll get into that a little bit later, but um, I just think that's really interesting, the amount of eyewitnesses, and yet there's still this Unaccounted for time. Sorry, I just had a thought. Yes, if he
0: has a big van, could he have murdered her in the van and then just dumped her body and drove off? That's also a possibility that I've thought about too, because um, that would make sense, because no one came out to help her until after the after seventeen stabs.
1: stabs. Yeah, he. Yeah, yeah. That's also a possibility, which, like, and that would have made. For a quick getaway for the killer as well. Right. Um, And then that cute guy was just jogging. Yeah, he could have just been jogging. We don't know. (laughs) We honestly don't know because no one has come forward with any information. It's nuts. (laughs) Okay, so that's the first piece of evidence that's really weird. A whole bunch of eyewitnesses for before and after, but nothing for the actual event. Um, and then, as I mentioned before, we have the DNA under her fingernails. So, police did scrape under her fingernails, and originally they tested the sample, and it was thought to be the killer's DNA. So, for anyone who doesn't know anything about DNA testing, um, there is not a giant computer that has every single person's DNA logged into it. If DNA is tested, and it's marked against a criminal database, and like no criminals pop up with the same DNA, then... The DNA is pointless. You have to have something to compare it to or else it's just going to sit in a test tube um, in evidence. So right. there was nothing that was like tested against the DNA and was positive. So we know whoever it
0: was wasn't criminally criminal. Yes, a criminal. exactly. So they
1: didn't have a criminal a background. Caught. Yes. It had not been criminally caught yet. <laughs> Yeah, if that makes sense. <laughs> um, yeah, so it wasn't until 11 years later that the DNA provided any information. 11 years? Yeah, 11 years. I know. Why? I'm going to tell you. Okay. <laughs> and it's going to make you really mad. And it makes me really mad. All right. So I embraced to be, be mad. <laughs> right. So the results come back and the DNA has been compromised. So, by what? By a lab technician um so he worked the case in 1998 um he currently lives in thailand from the last thing that i read about him what i don't know did why. he like leave the country because he was because he cause made he did a this? ginormous mistake and he was like bye i don't <laughs> like oh i should oh no. leave <laughs> yeah exactly well i don't know why he moved to thailand all i know is i read an article and it said he moved to thailand um but his dna was added to a new database that the lab had created as a precaution. So when his DNA was entered into the computer, it matched to the sample underneath Suzanne's fingernails. So obviously the lab had put together sort of like their own database for all of the people who had worked in the lab um, so that if anything was contaminated, they could know that. And that's unfortunately what happened with the, the samples that were found underneath Suzanne's fingernails. So that Proves nothing, unfortunately. Are you able
0: to? I don't know anything about DNA. Yeah, <laughs> but are you able to tell whether there is more than one DNA in one sample? Like, where they could they have separated the lab technician's DNA and still have a usable sample?
1: I don't think so. So I'm also not a forensics expert, um, but I do know that when once a sample is contaminated, it's impossible for them to separate out the two strands of DNA. It just means that one has overpowered the other and the other has disintegrated or something like that. I know that if a case sits for a really long time and there is DNA evidence, there's a point where DNA does start to disintegrate and becomes unusable, unfortunately. Um, 11 years is not how long it usually takes but I think because there was the contamination there was an over like there was tons of DNA from this lab technician and then there wasn't enough to separate the two out I guess. Right. Um so wait, this is 98. This is 98. And okay. then 11 years later, which would be
0: 2009. But the contamination happened in 98. In 98, yeah. Okay, I don't want to defend the lab technician fully, but I can see how DNA wasn't that big of a thing at this point, and maybe they didn't fully understand the best way, they didn't have the best protocols in place at the time, Mm -hmm. that's something that has to, you have to have time for that to, to perfect it, which we still haven't, and it's 2018.
1: Absolutely. And I completely agree with you on that. And again, I'm not a forensics es- expert by any you means. You kind of are. Well, okay. I watched a lot of phones I don't <laughs> and think... forensic files. I do watch a ton of forensic files. But unfortunately, for forensic files, a lot of the stuff like blood splatter and um, hair follicle comparison and um, bite marks, that's all inadmissible in court.
0: What's admissible It's just that no one believes yeah, it.
1: Yeah. It's not, it's a pseudoscience. So Ooh, that's a good word. Thank pseudoscience. you. Pseudoscience, which means it's fake. <laughs> it's I like not the a real way it sounds. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. So all of those things are not per- like that. You can't pull an expert witness about blood splatter or follicle comparison. Like there's no experts in those particular fields of science. So you can't call forth an expert an expert when you're in. Um, When you're on trial or when you're in the middle of trial. Well, you can if they don't catch you. Exactly. But if you're a smart lawyer and you're defending a killer, you're going to catch that. You're going to catch that it's a pseudoscience and you're going to say, nope, (laughs) (laughs) not real. It's like saying... (laughs) Objection? "Um, Objection, Your Honor. Thank you. Um, Yeah. So it's like bringing a polygraph into a trial process. is Okay. Know that the bite marks Mm -hmm. are inadmissible.
0: Yes. Has, I know that blood splatter and hair follicle are recent yes. things that have been debunked. Mm-hmm. Has it got to the point where it's really not admissible? I'm like not... has a law been passed or something? <laughs> yeah, right? I, don't... I don't
1: know. I don't know if it's been passed. All I know is that I've read a few articles about how blood splatter, some cases are up for appeal now because of, because that. of that, because we're moving forward In in forensic science, which is really important, like even for people who went on trial and were innocent and they were charged with murder because of that evidence, then that's really good for them. And I think it's important to have actual scientific evidence. So if there's like you can't I don't know what the deal with blood splatter is. I know that there are certain like droplets that you can test to see if someone was running or standing still. Um, and there have been several instances where that did prove true. And they found the blood of the killer in that spot. So it has proven effective to a point. But when the blood that they found and the splatter that they found did not completely incriminate the person that they're putting on trial, then... I don't know. It's it's a whole thing. Um well, it's a really complicated topic, and I feel like I'm not an expert enough to be able to – an expert, at lol – to talk about it. Um, right. Because I don't study forensic science, but it's really interesting, and um, it's important as we move forward in the field of forensic science that we're accurate and are putting the blame on the people who actually did it.
0: Well, blood splatter evidence was big in the staircase, Yes. Trial. Oh, my God. The
1: Staircase. <laughs> so <laughs> that, if you're... That want, case gets me so... Oh, my God. It's so frustrating. If you want more information, go watch <laughs> the, the Staircase on Netflix. It's nuts. It's it's kind of boring. It's really boring. <laughs> the first episode is interesting, and the guy makes you want to rip out your teeth. The like case he's is horrible. not boring. No. The
0: documentary is kind of
1: boring. Yeah. No offense, but it is boring.
0: <laughs> um, But I agree with you that... If we're going to use science to implicate people, then it has to be accurate. Like, Absolutely. It cannot be,
1: you cannot have reasonable doubt, so to say. No. Because um, science is fact. So if it has a reasonable doubt, then it's not fact. But also, blood
0: splatter was fact at one point. It was. So that's yeah. really scary that we are living in a time right now where all of this stuff that was used to. Probably too for sure to find people guilty. I'm sure in many instances, not to go back to our rant about the death penalty, but yes. I'm sure that we had in a couple or in a different episode, but <laughs> I'm sure that that science that's not accurate has been used to put people to death. And yeah,
1: I'm sure it has. No, I don't believe any science. I know. It's so frustrating. And that's the other thing is that we shouldn't disbelieve or like, think that it's not accurate. Because there are instances, I literally just watched an episode of Forensic Files where the blood of this person was found at the crime scene and they couldn't find the killer. Like, it was somebody else's blood. They didn't know whose blood it was. But at the same time, they found a different type of blood on the crime scene and they put someone on trial and in prison and they were not the killer. So it's really interesting. Wait, is that the one... It's the one about like the... there's like a there's like kids in this there's like a, an attack in a house. No, no. Okay. <laughs> so the one, it was it's the one about they were like landlords. They were an elderly couple. They owned this apartment complex and they were found brutally murdered in their home. Their house was and no offense to the victims. Their house was gross. <laughs> like there was a ton of stuff. Everywhere quarters. It, yes, it, that's what it looked like. But it was a mess in there, and these two people were found stabbed to death, and they found blood on the scene. And the person whose blood it was, it turned out that they were not the killer. Um, so it's 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 weird. It's a weird little interesting forensic. Yeah, that's not thing. the one I was thinking of. But yeah, no. See, it's everywhere. It's in all. <laughs> of I of know these it's cases. in all of these cases. And if you watch Forensic Files, most of them are follicle comparison, and blood splatter. And they always take a polygraph test. I never really understood that. Because for those who don't know, polygraphs are inadmissible in court. It is absolutely a pseudoscience. It's the definition
0: of a pseudoscience. It does not test whether you are lying. It tests your blood pressure.
1: Yeah, so you could be completely telling the truth, but you just are nervous, and it'll say that you're lying. At least we were starting to understand more of forensic science and are digging more deep into it. And I really do think that shows like Criminal Minds and Bones and Forensic Files and Law and Order, all of them are creating an interest in this sort of stuff. So we have more people who want to study it and who want to study criminology, which is important because unfortunately, there's a ton of crime in our society. And um, I wish there wasn't, but there is. And I think if we understand it and we know how to process it and how to Prosecute it, then we can fix a lot of these things and put more people and away. defend it. Yes, and we can defend it because Randy loves defending the innocent, <laughs> which I mean everybody should defend the innocent, but. right? Yeah, so there you go. Blood splatter is not a thing. <laughs> okay, okay. Wow, where were so, we? Okay, so DNA. So we're kind of was, mad at the guy, but not that mad. Yeah, so we're kind of mad at the guy. Kind not of as understand mad it. if it was if this had taken place like 10 years ago I would be way more mad Um, so we have the DNA under her fingernails and the next piece of evidence is actually a fragment of the murder weapon so as we know she was stabbed 17 times um, with such violence that the tip of the murder weapon was lodged in the back of her head ew I know Um, this is not a very good murder weapon I know exactly very flimsy (laughs) terrible choice (laughs) Um, the police claimed that the murder was a crime of passion, probably by someone she knew, because of the violence of the crime. And I almost have to agree with that because of the number of stab wounds alone. Like, yeah, that's. I was saying that
0: earlier. Like, if you just want to murder someone, like stab them once. I mean, don't murder someone. But first of all, don't murder anyone. <laughs> Disclaimer: <laughs> we're, we're against not, murder. I, we're not advocating for this. But geez, like you're taking a risk. Standing in the middle of a street.
1: Yeah, it's not like this was a robbery gone wrong or anything like that. This was a crime of passion and it was someone she knew. And the police say that that's an accurate statement. So we have two things that were found by her body um, a fresca can that had a partial palm print on it, which eventually turned out to be Joven's palm print. Um, And then some cigarette butts, which I don't know what happened to the cigarette butts. Um, the only place that I found them mentioned was in the Yale Daily News, which is, I think, a newspaper on campus. I don't know if that's right or not. Um, but when the case was reopened in 2009, which was because of the DNA evidence that was found um, to be compromised uh That's when they were mentioned, but nothing has been brought up since about the cigarettes. Um, So when somebody processes a crime scene, everything is taken from the crime scene, including like grass and gravel and cigarette butts if they're on the street. But, you know, I don't know if there was a lot more. I'm sure there was more smoking in the 90s than there is now. So there were probably cigarette butts all over the place. And this was like where teachers lived. And I don't know about you, but I know a lot of my professors that smoke cigarettes. You do? Yeah. Now? Yeah. They're they're just like the artsy ones, the oh yeah. the English professors that are like, "Oh, I'm so mysterious. I'm <laughs> I'm still living in the beatnik generation." And I'm like, "Okay, get over yourself. <laughs> You're killing your lungs. Yeah, stop smoking." <laughs> but anyway.
0: But wait, so she was just she had a Fresca can and mm-hmm. they determined that was hers?
1: Yeah, so it had a palm print on it, and the palm print was Joven's. So she's just casually standing outside with a fresca can? I know, and that's the other thing, is they didn't, I don't know anything about her personal effects, like if she had a purse, or a wallet, or keys, I feel well, like she maybe would have keys on her.
0: Maybe they're not releasing that.
1: They always know yeah. more than we know. They always have more evidence in lockup than Which we know about. I mean... Which kind of makes They're sense. They're investigating right? it, so. Yeah, the case w- is still open, and um, there were a couple instances where, um, like, FOIA came into account. Oh, cool. Yeah, so the... Journalism! <laughs> Journalism! Woo. So, for those who don't know, FOIA is the Freedom of Information Act, which just basically states that the public can have access to documents produced by police departments, by the government, by all of that, we have a right to access those documents. Um, But there's like 12 or 15 something like yes. that. Exceptions. Exceptions to the rule. If someone we knows, like let us, us know. We like the dumbest journalists <laughs> ever. Yep, we're both journalism we need to re- refresh ourselves. <laughs> yeah, right? Oh my gosh. Anyway, well, I mean,
0: we do records requesting at the Collegian.
1: Yeah, we do. And for those who don't know, the, the Rocky Mountain Collegian is the newspaper here at Colorado State. And Randy and I both well, I currently work um, at the Collegiate and then Randy was my director of arts and culture when I was a tiny little <laughs> reporter, <laughs> which, you know, is kind of like fate. So we funny, met I know. at the arts and culture desk and now we're talking about murder. It is awesome. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. But yeah, um, FOIA is really cool. FOIA is really important. You can use that. <laughs> it's so important that we it's don't know so anything about it. <laughs> that we know very minimal about it. I like how we acted really educated about it when you mentioned it. Like, oh, FOIA, we're oh, yeah, majors. We know what that Casually is. We mentioned that. Yeah, but then exactly. we, it quickly disintegrated. <laughs> yeah, it did. It went down from there. But yeah, it is a thing. The Freedom of Information Act. If you know more about it, <laughs> tell us. <laughs> <laughs> Write us a tiny little description. Let us know what we're wrong about. Because we're probably wrong. I don't know. But yeah, so um, the case was reopened several times under FOIA. Because of a whole bunch of journalists that wanted to know more information. And we can talk about that later, too. Don't worry. We'll get into all of... See, I keep on saying it's going to get weirder. It will get, get part three. Yeah. Part three is going to be the weirdest. We're very excited. Um, but yeah. So thank you guys so much for listening to part two of The Unsolved Murder of Suzanne Jovan. To listen to part three, click on part three. <laughs> 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 okay. Bye. Bye.